You are listening to John DeYard's Life Spa, your premier source for health news in Ayurveda, where modern science meets ancient wisdom. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. John DeYard, and welcome to LifeSpa.com. In today's podcast, I have a very, very special guest, Patrick McEwen, who wrote a book called The Oxygen Advantage. He's done pioneering research on nose breathing, nose breathing, exercise, nose breathing, sleep, and the benefits of nose breathing. Uh, as you all know, in my first book, Body, Mind, Sport, we did research on nose breathing. So I really think this is going to be an incredibly special podcast because you're going to find out some of the newest, latest information about nose breathing and the benefits that are going to blow your mind. So let me read you a little bit about Patrick's bio. He's been pioneering breathing exercises in health and sports since 2002. His book, The Oxygen Advantage, combines specially formulated techniques to reduce breathlessness during physical exercise, increase oxygen delivery to the brain, improve sleep, and remain focused under stress. To date, Patrick has worked with elite military special forces, SWAT, as well as Olympic athletes, coaches, as well as you've got a couple of new books coming down the pike. Is that right, Patrick? Currently writing them. It's, it's one of those things you, you expect to have books written. And uh, for me, anyway, I don't meet deadlines because there's yeah. so much information out there and it's a little bit of a rabbit hole. Once you start going into it, it's, uh, it's incredible what you can find. So cool. So anyway, welcome and to Thanks our very podcast. Much. And, and um, uh, so let me just dive right in here. Um, uh, and, and just for our listeners who are, who are, who are um, know a little bit about some of the work I did on nose breathing, they, we did research back in the early 90s and we did brainwave studies. Um, we found that when you breathe through your nose versus your mouth, the brain goes into a coherent alpha state of a neurological calm. And you said something in your book that I thought was really interesting. Um, you said that one of your quotes was that when you breathe properly through your nose, the hairs in your nose shouldn't even move. And yes. that is such a Vedic concept. When you look at Ayurvedic breathing techniques or yogic breathing, of course, there's many different kinds of breathing, some more aggressive than others. And I want to talk about that. But the ultimate goal of Vedic breathing is to be like the eye of the storm, that your breath is so calm and so still, and that supports the dynamic activity. And like a hurricane, the bigger the calm, the more powerful the winds. So yes. I want to dive in, ask you, this, I have a million questions for you. And my first question for you is, okay, we were, we were, um, yeah, before we get into the, the how, why it should be so quiet, why the breath should be so quiet, I think people are asking, like, like, why nose breathing? Like, you know, if we're supposed to nose breathe, why don't we nose breathe? What's, why did we stop? And when did we start nose breathing? And what's the, the, the uh, anthropology of nose breathing? If we could start there. Um, the anthropology, and people are working in this field. You have pediatric dentist, Dr. Kevin Boyd from Chicago. And he's also studying as an anthropologist. And you've got Professor John Mew from the UK. And dentists are really more aware of it, probably than other disciplines, because of the, the shape and the changes to the shape as a result of mouth breathing. Pretty much all mouth breathing children, um, it can create abnormal craniofacial development and overcrowding of teeth. And the jaws are too small. The mouth is too small. There's not enough room for the tongue. So the first documented cases of crooked teeth by John Mew was 
about 400 years ago. And it was when they unearthed graves from upper middle class backgrounds. These people had access to sugar and it's reasoned that there was processed foods, including sugar consumption in Europe, that led to a change. And that change led to craniofacial abnormalities. So they had overcrowding of teeth. So our ancestors throughout our evolution were innate nasal breeders. We are born breathing through the nose. And nowadays we're just not living the way we were supposed to be living in any shape or form. You know, I, when I went to India and I was writing my book on nose breathing exercise and I was looking for all this research on nose breathing exercise and yoga. And what I kept stumbling across was uh, studies of, of parents who would, if their kids were lying on their back with their mouth open, they would turn them on their side, tuck their chin and close their mouth. It was traditional yes. to train them to be nose breathers. There were studies that I found, I don't know how good the studies were, but there were infantry studies where certain infantry groups that were nose breathers compared to mouth breathers and the infantry groups that were nose breathers had better endurance, they never got sick compared to the mouth breathers. So there was all of that. And then, and then there were the, and let's talk about for a minute as we dive into that, the, the traditional runners, like the, the, uh, the male runners in Central America would, would run with water or, or rocks in their yeah. mouth. And, and if you ever try to run with a rock in your mouth and breathe through your mouth, you're going to swallow the rock. Uh, and it's not, it's not good. It doesn't feel good. Uh, I've tried it. Um, and uh, so there was a lot of traditional cultures in sports as well. And, but it's, and I don't want to just talk about sports. Today. I want to talk about the benefits in just everyday life. But there were some really you know, historical evidence that, that all the athletes were nose breathers. Is that correct? It's, John, it's incredible that we have lost such something so basic, such as nose breathing, you know, and we've, unfortunately, I've sat in some places and we've had medical doctors saying there's no difference between breathing through the mouth and breathing through the nose. And I beg to differ because if you open up any medical textbook, if you look at any of the functions of the mouth, you will never see breathing listed as a function of the mouth. The only function of the mouth, well, three of them will be eating, drinking, and speaking, etc. Your nose is for smelling and breathing. The, it's, you know, the more I look into it, for so many different facets, the mind, sleep, and breathing are absolutely inextricably linked. And mm -hmm. if breathing is through the mouth, the breathing is faster, there's less oxygen uptake in the blood, there's less oxygen delivery, we're more in a fight or flight response, the mind is more agitated. And if our breathing is through the mouth, we have lighter sleep. And when we have lighter sleep, we are more irritable, we are fatigued, and we have cognitive difficulties. And that feeds into anxiety and stress. And when we are anxious and stressed, our breathing is faster and shallow. And that, in turn, feeds into breathing pattern disorders. So, you know, if you think of all of the people in modern society with poor sleep and with agitation of the mind, and we have to really, when we're talking about breathing, and I have to say, I got your book. Maybe I can't remember exactly, but I looked at the print run and this was 2001. So I could have picked this up 15 years ago. And it was a tremendous insight to see that somebody had covered this ground so clearly. And I'd say you were, you were absolutely the pioneer on nasal breathing um, because I hadn't seen books written pre that which was going into so much detail. 
I agree with you. This wisdom has been around for a long, long time. However, I sometimes wonder did the message get stored, get distorted when it traveled down the telephone wires? Because when we look at breathing, all too often we are told to take big breaths, to breathe hard, to breathe more air into our lungs. It's very common in different modalities. And I wonder, does the instructor who's giving the instruction know the physiology and what's changing as a result of the big breaths? Yes, there is time for big breaths, but there's also time for light breathing, slow breathing, and deep breathing. You know, um, when I was doing the research for my book, I talked to um, compare, uh, um, uh, what do they call them? Um, um, comparative anatomists, where they would look at different species and, and see what they were breathing. And of course, humans back then, when I wrote the book and doing the research in the 80s, it was pretty clear that we, as humans, we were obligate nose breathers to yes. be born with and born that way. Now we're sort of, I think, called, I forget what they call it, but we're, when they don't call it obligate, we, we only have the ability to breathe through our nose. And then I, I read somewhere also that the, that the turbinates of the nose, sort of like a like the piston engine, when the piston sucks the air in, it actually, when the beginning, when they first made it, it would just suck all the air in, in one place and the explosion, the chamber would just go, always be in the same place and it would, the engine would last like, you know, a year or a couple, of, not very long. So then when they created the valve and they started swirling the air and it would exchange the gas in, in the whole piston, which is like our lungs, Yes. Then these now cars can last for four or 500,000 miles. And that's exactly what the nose does. is turbinates yes. swirl yes. and spin the air. And, and they create this kind of this driving of the air all the way down into the lower lobes of your lungs. So as you know, and tell, tell us about the difference between what's happening in the lower lobes of your lungs versus the upper chest lungs, lower, uh, you know, lobes of the lungs, and why it's so important to get air into the lower lobes of your lungs. Well, number one, the greatest concentration of blood is in the lower lobes of the lungs. Um, not just because of the, the dimensions of the lower lobes. The area is greater, of course, in the, lower, in the lower part of the lungs, but also because of gravity. So blood isn't redistributed throughout the lungs equally. Now, when we breathe through our nose, our nose is directly connected with the diaphragm and mouth is directly connected with the chest. If we are persistently mouth breathing, we aren't activating the diaphragm. And when we think of the airway, we have to consider it's one airway. Since 2007, researchers have identified your nose, your throat, the trachea, the bronchi, the bronchioles, the lungs, the diaphragms, all one airway. And if there's a problem in the nose, that can manifest as a problem in the lungs. And if there's a problem in the lungs, it can manifest as a problem in the nose. Now it's coming back to it. The turbinates serve a number of very, very important functions. Only since 1994 has it been realized that if a surgeon has cut away too much of the turbinate, it can cause what's called empty nose syndrome. And it, this was coined by, um, I think it's a Harvard medical doctor, Eugene Cairn. No, sorry, from the Mayo Clinic, Eugene, Dr. Eugene Cairn. Even if 10% of the turbinates were removed as part of a normal typical procedure, which is involving ear, nose, and throat surgery. That individual, when they try to breathe through the nose, they feel as if they are drowning because the turbinates are there to, to impose a resistance to breathing that's two to three times that of the mouth. And that allows 
for slowing down of the breath for oxygen transfer to take place. Now, if you look at the symptoms of empty nose syndrome, people have died by suicide as a result of this. So, you know, our nose is one of those organs. And when nature designs something, it designs it with such impeccable detail. And also, we have to bear in mind that if the roof of the mouth is the floor of the nose, so if you put your tongue into the roof of the mouth, and if you drag your tongue along the hard palate to the soft palate, we're all aware of the space that the mouth occupies in the skull. But many of us aren't aware that it's the floor, the nose is sitting above the mouth and the nose is going right back and occupying so much space within the skull. You know, Dr. Morris Cottle, he was an ENT from the United States back in the 1970s. He said that the nose is responsible for 30 functions in the human body. And I'm going to say that no child or adult is reaching their full inherited potential unless they breathe through their noses. And yes, you're correct. When we are born, we are born breathing through the nose because the soft palate at the back of the mouth and the epiglottis meet. So physiologically, it's very difficult for the child, the young infant baby, to breathe through the mouth. And then at some point, they drop down. But I read a paper, it's a terrible paper, by Dr. Christian Gimeno on young kids who died from sudden infant death syndrome. What they all had in common was narrow upper jaws. And the only thing that they had preceding death was a minor nasal obstruction, um, something like a runny nose. So I think it's really time that we have to be start looking at infants. We have to start looking at the, if the child is tongue-tied. We have to start looking at the habits because this is changing so quickly. One generation, the shape of the human face is changing. And when we're talking about the shape of the human face, we're talking about the airway. So there's a lot more to it um, than, you know, than sometimes we, we realize. So let's, let's talk about why it's so important to have resistance from the turbinates, why it's so important um, not to overbreathe, and why it's so important for us to restore or re-educate us to be tolerant to carbon dioxide. And what does that, what does that have to do with how much oxygen actually ends up in your tissues. This is, I think, the crux of it all, right? Yes. Um, in 1988, a researcher called Swift, and he's been written by, by a, with, in terms of his studies by Dr. James Bartley, who is an ear, nose, and throat doctor from New Zealand. Swift found that when patients were post-jaw surgery, these patients were after having jaw surgery, and post-jaw surgery, they were forced, because their jaws were wired shut, they were forced to continuously breathe through the nose. The pressure of oxygen in the blood increased by 10% just by continued na nasal breathing. Now, why could that happen? It possibly is coming down to, number one is when you're breathing through your nose, you're breathing slowly. So there is, there is adequate time for oxygen transfer to take place, but also you're breathing deeper. So you've got increased lung volume and you've got a greater distribution of, of air and blood throughout the lungs. Also with nasal breathing, you harness a gas called nitric oxide. And nitric oxide was first discovered on the exhaled breath of the human in 1991. So with every breath that we breathe through our nose, we pick up this gas, nitric oxide, and nitric oxide redistributes the blood throughout the lungs. So nasal breathing, it's estimated that the biological significance is an increase of oxygen of about 10 to 15%. Now, the other gas, of course, that's very important is carbon dioxide. 
Now, we don't always see that mouth breathing will cause lowered CO2, but heavy breathing does cause lowered CO2. And carbon dioxide is not just a waste gas because the oxygen that we breathe in through our nose, into our lungs, into the small air sacs, from the lungs into the blood, this oxygen is carried mainly by hemoglobin molecules, which are proteins within the red blood cell. But in order for hemoglobin to release oxygen, it's released in the presence of carbon dioxide. Now, if we have an idea that it's good to take these big breaths, and I was a mouth breather for 25 years, I was constantly tired and I was constantly stressed. I had no concentration and my lungs were always giving out. So the, the act of mouth breathing, does it increase oxygen uptake and does it increase oxygen delivery? No. The harder we breathe, the more we get rid of carbon dioxide from the blood through the lungs. And as we lose carbon dioxide, our blood vessels constrict and the bond between red blood cells and, and oxygen is strengthened. And I suppose it makes sense. The purpose of breathing is not just to get oxygen into the blood, but the purpose of breathing is to get the oxygen from the blood to the tissues. And for that, we need carbon dioxide. This is not new stuff. This was discovered back in 1904, and it's known as the Bohr effect. You know, so when there's an increase of CO2 in the blood, blood pH drops, and the affinity of oxygen and hemoglobin is reduced. So, you know, I often do it with people that we have them just do slow breathing. And it's not just about slow breathing, but it's about light breathing. And within a few minutes, they experience increased watery saliva in the mouth, which will be an indicator that you're going into kind of more parasympathetic response and also improved circulation. They feel warmer. So people who are often heavy breathers or mouth breathers, they've got cold hands, cold feet, and they have brain fog. So through the breath, you know, and I suppose with functional breathing, um, we have to consider three dimensions of it. Light is really about the biochemistry of the breath to make sure that we have normal biochemistry, um, that we have normal carbon dioxide in the blood, that we are not breathing too hard to get rid of too much carbon dioxide, because of course, that's going to reduce oxygen delivery and affect our circulation, etc. But not just light breathing, we want to have slow breathing because the mind, it's, you know, and the science, as you said, the science is starting to catch up. If you Google Stanford Medical School and slow breathing, researchers found, in, originally they found it in mice, and they said that there's a part of the brain that's spying on your breath. And when you breathe fast, this part of the brain is relaying signals of agitation to the rest of the brain. And when you breathe slowly, this part of the brain is relaying signals of calm to the rest of the brain. So light, slow breathing, and deep breathing using the diaphragm. And of course, when we breathe using our diaphragm, we tend to breathe slower anyway. And when we breathe through our nose, we tend to breathe lighter. So, you know, my work, I sacrificed deep breathing and slow breathing for many years because I concentrated mainly on the biochemistry. The yoga instructor is often sacrificing light breathing and cadence breathing because the yoga instructor is concentrating on the biomechanics. And then you might have an instructor in heart rate variability and they are concentrating mainly on the cadence of breathing, but they're not concentrating on the biomechanics or the biochemistry. So that's what my new book is out is just trying to just bridge the three dimensions of breathing and bring them together with breathing exercises to tap into those, but they are all linked. You can't, you can't just do one without considering the other.
and just so let me just sum up for a quick sec. What you're telling everyone is that because we breathe through our mouth, we tend to overbreathe too much oxygen, and we tend to breathe out too much CO2. And the CO2 is sort of that kind of that I need to breathe suffocation sort yes. of alert. Yep. But that suffocation alert is what tells your blood to dump all the oxygen into the tissues because the body's saying, hey, I need some oxygen. And the body goes, okay. And it dumps all this oxygen into the tissues. So now your tissues actually get the oxygen that's in your blood. You know, the oximeter readings that you take always yes. says everybody's 96, 97, 98%. But that's like you said, it's only in the, in the blood. It's yes. not in your tissues. And when oxygen in your tissues some amazing things happen that don't happen when you're sort of when you're sort of without the adequate amount of oxygen in your blood. So I want to I want to get into what happens. It almost seems like that that a little bit of CO2 tolerance sort of tells the body this is a bit of an emergency. Dump the oxygen into the tissues and send more of these amazing repair uh, molecules like stem cells and, and um, vascular growth factors and DNA repair factors and nitric oxide and EPO, all of these things happen. And I wonder, I have so many things to ask you, is it the fact that, I mean, I want you to comment on all that in a minute, but is it the sure. fact that that it's the oxygen being dumped into the tissues that triggers those responses? Or is it the little bit of sense before suffocation that says, hey, we need oxygen and we're, we're, we're building up a little CO2, which, which sends this message to push out all these repair chemicals like stem cells and EPO and all this stuff. And that makes us sort of in a way superhuman. So, and uh, one other question, if you can answer all this at once. <laughs> You mentioned in your book, and I never saw the science behind this, that when you, we make nitric oxide in the sinuses in our nose, and when you breathe quietly, it sucks that air all the way down into the lower lobes of your lungs where all the, all the blood is to exchange into your blood, and it's a Nobel Prize winning molecule that cures everything. It was a panacea molecule. Literally, Nobel Prize winners don't use the word panacea, but they used it in 1998 when nitric oxide won the, won the Nobel Prize in chemistry. And that's only produced when you breathe through your nose, not produced when you breathe through your mouth. But you said something in your book that I thought was fascinating. If you breathe really forcefully, it's such a delicate gas, it just gets dispersed. But it's only that slow breathing that actually delivers that nitric oxide. So if you can comment on all that, that would be great. Sure. Um, Professor John Lundberg, is, his title is Professor of Nitric Oxide at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden. It's a very renowned institute. It's probably equivalent in Europe to your Mayo Clinic. Uh -huh. And he's been working primarily, he's got many papers looking at the role of nitric oxide in the human airways. The, the, the concentration of nitric oxide through the nose is 50 to 200 parts per billion. And the concentration of nitric oxide through the mouth is 10 parts per billion. Mm. And it, it's continuously released into the nasal cavity. So if we breathe nice and slowly, we can pick up a higher concentration of it because we're giving enough time for the nitric oxide to come into the air and we're carrying that nit nitric oxide laden air into the lungs. Now, I'm not sure that it's fully realized whether the nitric oxide coming from the lungs is actually getting into circulation because it's a short-lived gas. But if we look 
and this will be other changes that I, that I will make in the book. Um, but if we look at the effect that it has in the lungs, it's a bronchodilator. It sterilizes the incoming air. It redistributes the blood throughout the lungs. It's a signaling molecule during sleep. Now you think of people with obstructive sleep apnea. We need the upper airway dilator muscles maintaining an open airway during sleep. And as we get older, these muscles get lazy. And as we put weight on the belly, it reduces lung volume and the throat is more liable to collapse. And obstructive sleep apnea is a car crash waiting to happen. You know, it's affecting men between 30 and 50 years of age, about 26% of them. But once we hit 50, it's affecting 43% of men. And in females between 30 and 49 years of age, it's, it's 9% of them. But once, once the female hits 50, it triples. Once the female goes through menopause, sleep apnea triples. And it has horrendous consequences. And here is where nose breathing and the tongue and the rest resting in the roof of the mouth, helping to maintain an open airway. But the connection of nitric oxide is a signaling molecule to the upper airway dilator muscles. And of course, the connection between nose breathing and the diaphragm and the diaphragm and the upper airway dilator muscles. And also, you can't have your tongue in the roof of the mouth if your mouth is open. Your tongue is more likely to fall back into the throat. And carbon dioxide also plays a role in that. And there's so much, and the field of sleep medicine has really changed in the last five years. Now with the recognition that, you know, anatomy is only one phenotype or one aspect of it. There's four phenotypes now and breathing can play a role there. But I'll come back to carbon dioxide. The, it's really about trying to have a match between our breathing and our metabolic needs. And I've seen you wrote about it in your book as well. When you're doing physical exercise, you want to have that sweet point where your breathing is absolutely, you know, it's sustainable. Um, the cadence is perfect. You know, you're, you're not struggling. And at the same time, you're reaching your kind of optimum pace. And we have to consider that individuals can have an increased sensitivity to carbon dioxide, or basically that they have a strong sensitivity to gas CO2. And as you stated, John, was that carbon dioxide is this primary stimulus to breathe. The drive to breathe is carbon dioxide, not oxygen. It's only when oxygen levels drop in our blood by half do we feel the need to breathe. So the air hunger that you pointed to, that's driven by carbon dioxide. So if we really slow down our breathing, we're breathing less air, and because we're breathing out less air, we're not losing so much CO2 from the blood through the lungs. Carbon dioxide then is increasing in the blood, blood pH drops, and the medulla, which is the most primitive part of the brain, reacts by sending a signal to breathe via the phrenic nerve to the diaphragm, to the intercostals. Diaphragm moves downwards, the thorax increases in volume, and air comes in. Now, if we have a strong sensitivity to carbon dioxide buildup, it means that our breathing is going to be hard because the body is continuously wanting to get rid of the gas. But an elite athlete, a well-trained athlete, they typically will have a reduced chemosensitivity to carbon dioxide. You notice if they go for a run. You go for a run alongside an elite athlete, that elite athlete will be breathing light for a given duration and intensity of physical exercise. And conversely, you could have another individual, they are just walking and they are breathing really hard. 
Now, a doctor might say, well, they've got some lung condition. Okay, fine. They've got some heart condition. Fine. But we can still change their breathing patterns. And I'll quote you the work of an Italian cardiologist, Dr. Luciano Bernardi, and he's published a lot of papers on PubMed. And as a cardiologist, he was noting his patients with chronic heart failure had exercise intolerance. They were getting very breathless for a given level of physical exercise. He wondered, was it their heart which was causing the increased breathlessness, or was it because they had an increased chemosensitivity to carbon dioxide? So he started teaching his patients slowing down their breath to six breaths per minute to reduce the chemosensitivity to carbon dioxide. And as a result, their exercise tolerance improved. Now, it's an amazing thing. And I'm going to bring this in now because I know I'm going to forget about it. Every breath that we take into the body, not all of that air gets into the small air sacs in the lungs, the alveoli for gas exchange takes place. So if we take a normal breath in of, say, half a liter, 150 mil of that air stays in dead space. It will stay in the nasal cavity. It will stay in the throat. It will stay in the trachea, in the bronchi, in the conducting bronchioles, etc. So the faster we breathe, the more air per minute, because we're breathing more breaths, the more air per minute that we waste in dead space. And to give you the maths in simple terms, if you take in 12 breaths per minute, and each breath is a half a liter, when we subtract dead space, it means that by breathing 12 breaths, a half a liter of air per breath, tidal volume, that is taking in originally six liters of air into the nose. But the amount that's getting into the small air sacs when we take away dead space is 4.2 liters. Now, if we simply said to an individual, don't breathe 12 breaths per minute, how about just changing the cadence during rest down to six breaths and allow the tidal volume to increase? you still take six liters of air into your, into your nose, but the amount of air that gets down into the small air sacs increases to 5.1 liters. So there's a 20% increased efficiency of your breathing. Even though you're taking the same amount of air into your body, but because you're, you're, you're wasting less air in dead space, you're enhancing alveolar ventilation. That idea came from um, Dr. Bernardi. So because, again, he would be working with his patients with heart failure, he's wondering, how can you have these people breathe to enhance oxygen uptake in the blood? And simply by slowing down the respiratory rate, you could achieve that, both in sea level, but also if people were climbing altitude. So is it the, is it the slowing down of the breath that just gives the, the air more time for exchange? Is That's that one of the of reasons. That's one yeah. of the reasons. And also, if you're taking less breaths per minute, you're not wasting as much air in dead space. So say, for instance, if I take 12 breaths, well, I'm going to have a waste of 12 by 150 mil, which is dead space is fixed. So you're talking about 12 by 150 is dead space. But if I slow down the breath from 12 to six breaths per minute, now there's only a waste of six by 150. So automatically you see that there's a saving there. And this has been looked at in individuals climbing altitude. Their blood oxygen saturation was 80%, which is severe hypoxia. They got them to sit down and instead of taking, you know, fast, shallow breathing was to take slow but deep breaths and increase their oxygen saturation to mild hypoxia of 89%, just by changing 
the respiratory rate. Now, breath hold at altitude is also a good indicator of acclimatization. But we also use breath holding during sea at sea level during rest as an indicator of the chemosensitivity of the body to carbon dioxide. So it's a very simple kind of test. You know, you take a normal breath in through the nose and normal breath out, you pinch your nose and you time it in seconds until you feel the first reaction of the brain sending an impulse to breathe. And this impulse, you feel it by involuntary contraction of the breathing muscles or the throat may contract. And we need at least 25 seconds. If the individual has a breath toll time of less than 25 seconds, it's classified as dysfunctional breathing. And if they're above 25 seconds, there is an 89% chance that they don't have dysfunctional breathing. And with athletes, we want to achieve 40 seconds. So I suppose as a measurement of breathlessness, you know, how can you measure how, how hard somebody is breathing? Well, you could sit them down for five minutes, allow their breathing to recover, and then ask them to simply breathe in, breathe out, pinch your nose, and time it in seconds until you feel the first definite desire to breathe. And the breath at the end should be fairly normal. So it's not influenced by willpower or determination. It's more a comfortable breath all time. How long does it take for the brain to react to the stopping of the breath? So if you go to um, the um, oxygen, oxygenadvantage.com, mm -hmm. all right, on um, Patrick's homepage, there's actually a, a test that he guides yes. you through called the Bolt test, which he's actually describing for you now, uh, which is the Bolt score. And you want to see what you're at, which is a really good test. You have another test on there too, which is the, the maximum breathlessness test. And maybe you yes. can describe that. Both of those tests are right on this homepage. Go there, oxygenadvantage.com, and take those tests. But describe that one too, and what's the purpose of that second one? So the BOLT score is measuring the onset and endurance of breathlessness. How soon do you get breathless during physical exercise? And how breathless would you be over a given level of exercise? The maximum breathlessness test is measuring your upper tolerance or your upper limit of tolerance of breathlessness. You can imagine somebody playing in team sports or sprinting or if they're in combat sports. They, they are working very, very, their energy system is primarily going to be anaerobic. And we want to find out what's the maximum tolerance of the degree of breathlessness. So with this exercise, now it wouldn't be suitable if the female was pregnant or if anybody has cardiovascular issues or you know, any serious health complaints. But the exercise is as follows. It's, it's a measurement. Take a normal breath in through the nose and out through the nose and pinch your nose with your fingers and start walking at a fairly normal pace and walk as many paces as you can until you can go no more and let go but breathe in through the nose. And you're counting the number of paces that you were able to hold your breath for until a maximum feeling of breathlessness. That's why it's called the maximum tolerance of breathlessness test. Now, it's interesting, exhaling and holding and the effect, not just as a measurement, but also as an exercise. And a good athlete will be able to hold their maximum breathlessness test of at least 60 paces. And the goal is to get 80 to 100 paces. But we will have athletes or we have individuals coming in and, you know, dysfunctional breathing patterns is more common than we think. And some guys are playing sports and their maximum breathlessness test is 25 paces and their bowl score is 10 paces. And these guys, 
they will experience disproportionate breathlessness. And as you pointed out earlier on, if we are breathing hard, too hard during physical exercise, less oxygen gets delivered to the cells. So muscles are going to be screaming for oxygen. The hydrogen ion, which is causing fatigue that's coming from the muscle, doesn't get oxidized. And instead, it's going to be increased acidosis, increased lactic acid, increased hydrogen ion. So, you know, it's all about, I suppose, breathing efficiency. How can you breathe to be efficient to enhance oxygen uptake? But how can you breathe to be efficient to get more oxygen delivered from the blood to the tissues? And that's what, you know, a big part of what we do is. Yeah, when I was, uh, I worked with the uh, <clears throat> New Jersey Nets for two years. and I was the director of player development and introduced, and actually they read my book. And I went to do some in-services about establishing the runner's high and getting calm and activity. And we had them with breathe right strips and had them train with nose breathing. And, and, um, and, and it was well received, but definitely during foul shooting, they, a lot of them really adopted that breathing through the nose and get settled and that, that calm. Because, you know, it's easy to shoot a foul shot in front of, you know, two or three people. It's a little more difficult when there's 25,000 people or 30,000 sure. people watching you. And, and they found a significant difference in, in their ability to maintain that composure and calm. And I think that's the, the beautiful thing that what we're, what we're talking about here is the ability to use your breath, which is the natural way to be in a somewhat of a parasympathetic dominant state during stress. When we did our study, we found we measured the fight or flight, the parasympathetic sympathetic nervous system. And normally in exercise, as you know, the fight or flight goes up to 100% and parasympathetic zeroes out, which is like a full-blown emergency. And if that's how you're exercising to you know, break your body down, to build yourself up, and everything is a, an exhaustive emergency that you must repair and recover from, your sustainability for that as an athlete is, is, is you're going to break down. But what we found in our study when they did nose breathing versus mouth breathing is that the, the sympathetic only went up 50% and the parasympathetic only went down 50%. And both opposite nervous systems were coexisting, which yes. was the runner's high, because the runner's high is my best race, is my easiest race. You know, when Roger Bannister yes, broke the yes. formula mile, he said, I felt like I was going slow, you know, which is yeah. that ability to be calm in activity. And this is a beautiful thing that, that you and I are talking about, and I hope people really get it. When you breathe through your nose, you're breathing it 26,000 times or so. And definitely, we want to talk about sleeping with your mouth closed, because that's just like, you know, extra credit. You do nothing while you're sleeping anyway. Yes. Most of that people have their mouth open and they're losing all this benefit by keeping their mouth wide open. So let's talk about that. Let's talk. I wrote an article about mouth taping and we measure our unsubscribes and how many people unsubscribe from our newsletters, you know, based on when we get a really big, you know, burst in unsubscribes. Yes, yes, yes. So when I yeah. wrote the article about taping your mouth when you sleep, we had the yeah. record number of unsubscribes. They're like, he's lost it. He's out of his mind. We're out. And well, I'm going, no, 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 you got to read the article and read the science yeah. as to why this is so important and how much time and benefit you're wasting sitting there with your mouth wide open at night. Mm. So let's talk about that. That's a little bit of a controversial subject, but it's so important. Well, the top sleep doctor in the world, who was regarded as one of the founding fathers of sleep medicine, he, he sadly passed away about six months ago. His name was Dr. Christian Guimano, and he was, from, he was based at Stanford Medical School. For the last five years, he has been writing about the critical importance of restoring nasal breathing. Now, mainly in pediatrics, 
but it wasn't just about pediatrics. I have spoken alongside him at different events, and I've seen him in room full of medical doctors, all sleep medicine specialists. And I've seen him stand up and he would say, you are talking about everything bar the elephant in the room. And the elephant in the room is the importance of breathing through the nose. In summary, if you have the mouth open, it dries out the mouth, it dries out the upper airways. As moisture is sucked out of the airways, it contributes to inflammation. As there is inflammation, there is narrowing of the airway. We have to consider the airway as a pipe and we have to consider breathing as flow. If an engineer was looking at the, a pipe, the diameter of a pipe, that engineer will want to know how much flow was going through it. However, in sleep medicine currently, everybody looks at the pipe, but nobody looks at the flow. Now, resistance to breathing during sleep is not good. If there's resistance to breathing in the nose, it can cause snoring. If the hard person is breathing hard through the mouth, there's vibration of the soft tissue at the back of the mouth, causing mouth snoring. And if the airways collapse, when the resistance gets too much, it's called obstructive sleep apnea. And obstructive sleep apnea is linked with a host of different conditions. Dementia, stroke, high blood pressure, all of the conditions that none of us want. And life expectancy can also be reduced quite significantly with obstructive sleep apnea. So how can we improve our sleep quality? We really need to have a good functional airway. We need two aims. One is to open up the airway. How do we maximize airway diameter? Well, we need to have the mouth closed. When the mouth is closed, the upper airway is larger. We also need to have the tongue resting in the roof of the mouth because the tongue has only got two places to be. It's, a, it's either in the roof of the mouth or it's falling into the throat. So we want lips together with the tongue resting in the roof of the mouth. That's helping to open up the airway. Then with nose breathing is targeting the diaphragm. Diaphragm breathing increases lung volume. And when there's an increase to lung volume, there is a stiffening of the airway wall. When we breathe through our nose, our breathing is more regular. And when our breathing is more regular, you know, in terms of carbon dioxide being normal and normal respiratory rate and a normal tidal volume coming in, the, because our breathing then isn't all over the place. In other words, if we have an individual and their breathing is all over the place, they're breathing from fast, they stop breathing, then they resume with hyperventilation, that feeds back into the next episode, etc. All of that stuff can be affected by nose breathing, but it's not just enough to breathe through the nose. We want nose breathing, slow breathing, driven by the diaphragm. The same stuff, John, that we've been talking about, that you spoke about 20 years ago. This is not new. As far back as the 16th century, it was documented the beneficial aspects of breathing through your nose during sleep. Mouth breathers have light sleep. They spend more time in light sleep. They don't get as much time in the real restorative, where the brain is cleaning itself down in the deep stages of sleep. I woke up as a kid and teenager, and I was fatigued every morning waking up. And you're expected to go in and do your grades. In pediatrics, if a child is mouth breathing and has sleep disorder breathing, and if it's untreated, untreated by the age of eight, 
that child has an 80% chance of a permanent 20% reduction in mental capacity. The cognitive development of the child is impacted by even snoring. No child should snore, and children who snore, they have a reduced academic achievement, they've got an increased incidence of ADD and ADHD, and they are sleepy, resulting in 10 times the risk of learning difficulties. And I'll send you one of these papers. Like, it's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. And I would say to any person, if you're waking up at a dry mouth in the morning, start thinking of ways to get your mouth closed. Now, we've been taping for 20 years, and there's different products on the market. Um, some tapes are coming right across the lips. We have a new product that will be coming out that is surrounding the lips. Because a lot of the time I'm working with pediatrics and, you know, we couldn't get a five-year-old kid and tape their lips during sleep. So we had to come up with an idea. So we have a tape that's elasticated. So when the, the child puts the tape on, it surrounds their lips. But because it's elasticated, it brings the lips closed. But the child could still talk. Or, you know, if, if they had an emergency during sleep, they can just breathe through their mouth. So we, it's really, really vital. Yeah. The statistics, nobody is looking at the research of this. We have some papers, you know, we've quite a few, but it, it really needs to get out there more because sleep is such a big issue. 20% of road traffic accidents are related to driver fatigue. People who fly a lot, and I fly a lot, I fly nearly every second week. I had two trips last week and I have one trip this week. Now, pilots falling asleep behind the cockpit. How many pilots have fallen asleep and when they woke up, they woke up to see the co-pilot asleep. Now, you know, we, this, is, this is sleep quality that we need to be considering. And everybody is talking about switch off your mobile phone, you know, wear blue light filter glasses, don't eat late at night, don't be drinking alcohol, do physical exercise. And all of this is brilliant stuff. But the real thing is nasal breathing. If you breathe through your nose, you won't be getting up to go to the bathroom as much during your sleep. Because if you have to get up to go to the bathroom, your sleep is being fragmented. You want deep sleep. You don't want continuous waking from sleep. You're dehydrated. The mouth conserves, sorry, the mouth, there's a 42% greater water loss breathing through the mouth. So when you breathe through the nose, it is correct that the nose is moistening and warming the air on the way into the body. But on the way out, the nose is trapping the heat and the moisture from the exhale breath. And again, the human body is so economical. It's expended energy on conditioning the air coming into the body. And now on the way out, it's trapping that heat and moisture. And that's what keeps the nose open. So as mouth breeders, and I, you know, my teeth were terrible. My development of my jaws, my airways are terrible. You have such wonderful orthodontists in the United States. And one is Dr. William Hang. And he's based in California, in Agoura Hills. And Dr. Hang did a scan of my airway because he's an orthodontist, but he's an, he's an orthodontist with a difference. There's, there's two schools of thought in orthodontistry. One is that the teeth are crooked because the teeth are too big. So let's extract teeth and let's tidy up the teeth, straighten them. But another school of thought is that the teeth are crooked because the jaw is too small and the jaws are too small because the child didn't have the tongue in the roof of the mouth. So this school of, of taught in orthodontics are 
let's develop the jaw because we can develop the airway. That's Dr. Hang. And Dr. Hang, I don't know what age, he must be late 60s. He runs the Boston City Martin and he's a continuous avid Martin runner. Mouth is closed. Now you talk about mouth taping. He goes on flights. I'm not brave enough to do this. He tapes his mouth on flights. I would, I would be afraid of my life, you know, because it's, it's, I'm already left of fields and I don't want to be labeled as a total weirdo. But he doesn't mind doing it because he gets the benefits. All of his patients, nasal breathing is key. And of course, when he's working from an orthodontic point of view, it's not just the teeth to be straight, but it's the airway because the airway is more important than teeth. But if you, can de- if you can develop the face the way it should develop, it follows that the teeth will be straight. A good looking face creates straight teeth. Straight teeth don't create a good looking face. And a good looking face is functional. Look at all the athletes who exceed. They are not ugly people in the main. And the reason is because they have beautiful symmetry of the face. They have really well-developed jaws. Their jaws are forward in the face. They've got plenty of room in the airway. I couldn't be an athlete because I had my mouth hanging open for 25 years. So so, uh, I suppose taping the mouth, I started back in 1997, 98. It changed my life. My concentration levels come up immeasurably. So yeah, so look at the research. I have a page, you know, that I put together and it's about 4,000 words looking at the science of why children should be breathing through the nose. Mm. No child who is persistently mouth breathing reaches their full genetic potential. So, so the tape that you're developing sounds really, really important because what's recommended is the micropore tape, which literally can rip the skin off your lips. Yes. And I've had patients tell me that. Uh, you suggest kind of softening it a little bit, but that doesn't seem to really work. That stuff loves skin and it just doesn't want to, uh, it loves lips. And so it's just, it's just sort of a, um, a lack of compliance when patients have issues trying to get it off, you know? Uh, and there are some products online on Amazon, like the Somnifix, which is somewhat of a good product. And there's some cheaper ones that just have like a tape, like an X tape across your mouth, which is okay. But I think if you're trying to train yourself, most of those other tapes are so weak that, you just blast open your mouth in the middle of the night and you don't, yes. and you lose the benefit. I measure, I measure my sleep, my deep sleep with this ring every night. And I notice that when I tape my mouth, um, I have much deeper sleep, like, like, you know, over a couple of hours of deep sleep versus light sleep or REM sleep. I also know, you know, when, when, so when I, when I do tape my mouth, I, I definitely see deeper sleep. I also notice that when I drink alcohol, um, I'm going to have a much more difficult glass of wine before, you know, with dinner or something, which is, is a, is a rare thing for me, but I do it to test and see the difference. And I have much more difficult time. Like I'll rip the tape off in the middle of night. If I have a glass of wine with dinner, it's the weirdest thing. So it's sort of a great sort of measure of, you know, being a detective of what are the things in your lifestyle, food, diet, drink, stress, all of these things impact whether you can stay in a parasympathetic, full-blown rejuvenative state at night. And your breath also is very linked to cerebral spinal fluid movement, which is the brainwashing fluid that drains three pounds of toxic chemicals and plaque out of your head every year while you sleep. And those limbs 
drained right specifically to the, to the sinuses in your nose. So there's this direct pathway in Ayurvedic medicine between nose breathing, the brain cleansing effect of three pounds of plaque out of your, and toxins out of your head every year while you sleep and only while you sleep do the brain lymphatics move and they drain through your nose. And if you're not using that nose to breathe, you end up having much more of a, of a uh, accumulation of these toxic brain lymphatic particles in your, in your uh, saying your brain chemistry, which are now, and they only dis discovered these limbs in the brain uh, in 19, about eight, 10 years ago at the University of Virginia. And now they've since linked congestion of the brain lymphatics or glymphatics to anxiety, depression, cognitive decline, infection, inflammation, and for the first time, a mechanism for autoimmune concerns. And that means that your brain lymphatics, which are totally linked to breathing and breathing through your nose, if they're congested, your brain, you know, and, and doesn't know how many, you know, uh, fire trucks to send to the fire on Broadway because the brain lymphatic system, which literally carries your immune system, is stuck in traffic. So, so, and and also read a study on intermittent hypoxia that showed that intermittent hypoxia, being able to hold your breath, being more CO2 tolerant, changes the neuroplasticity of your brain which means the ability for you to recover from stress, damage, emotional trauma, which is something I've been writing a lot about lately. I'm curious to know if you've seen any, any studies or in your work that doing this technique has ability to really lift folks out of their anxiety, out of their stress patterns, out of their old emotional trauma. There's a number of dimensions to it. We, over the years, we've had many people coming in with panic disorder, anxiety, and some with PTSD and some people with depression. If you change the biochemistry of the breath and you have them slow down their breathing to generate a slight air hunger, you increase blood flow to the brain and you increase oxygen delivery to the brain. And this reduces neuronal excitability. So it has a calming effect automatically on the central nervous system. But another aspect is slow breathing and slow breathing reducing agitation of the brain and also our diaphragm breathing muscle is not just for respiration. It's also connected with the emotions. So Bordoni, who has written, work, written papers on this, um, another Italian doctor, and he talks about the benefit of diaphragmatic breathing as a calming effect for the mind. And another aspect that we should be looking at is cadence breathing, is practicing slowing down our breathing to six breaths per minute to stimulate the vagus nerve, to stimulate and exercise what's called baroreceptors, which are pressure receptors in the major blood vessels. And these pressure receptors are monitoring our blood pressure. If our blood pressure increases, the baroreceptors should respond immediately by sending signals to the blood vessels to dilate and the heart rates come down so our blood pressure normalizes. And conversely, if the blood pressure drops, the baroreceptors should be sending immediate signals for the blood vessels to constrict and the heart rate to increase. But the sensitivity of the baroreceptors are an indicator of the functioning of the autonomic nervous system. And you can exercise these baroreceptors by slowing down the breath to six breaths per minute to increase heart rate variability and to increase what's called respiratory sinus arrhythmia. And in very simple terms, the heartbeat, the time, the or to or interval, or the time of one beat to the next should be in random and also in a rhythm. 
And respiratory sinus arrhythmia is the connection between our respiration and the timing of our heartbeat. So therapists for many years, I believe it's gone back for about 200 years, they would look at the autonomic nervous system of the individual by simply following their pulse rate and watching their breathing at the same time. And when the person was breathing in, there should be a natural increase in the speed of the heart rate. And when the person is exhaling, there should be a slowing down of the heartbeat. And that's a very good indicator of functioning of the autonomic nervous system, or even the balance, the parasympathetic, sympathetic balance. So we can influence. So if somebody has anxiety and it's coming back to sleep as well, how many people with anxiety and depression, when you talk to them about how do they feel when they wake up in the morning and they tell you that they wake up exhausted, now, how could you have a calm mind if you're waking up exhausted? What's causing what? Is it the anxiety and depression which is causing the exhaustion? Or is it the exhaustion which is causing the anxiety and depression? There's going to be a feedback loop here. And what's more, you know, as you were talking about earlier on, pre-sleep, really focus on slowing down your breath for about 15 to 20 minutes and do it to achieve a life air hunger because it will bring your body into that parasympathetic state which is conducive to a deeper sleep you know so there's so much that we can do and that's why i would say people with post-traumatic strep ptsd people with anxiety people with depression really look to the breath and when i'm watching people coming in with you know mental health complaints i look at their breathing it's very fast and shallow how could you be physiologically in a state of calm if your breathing is in a state of fight or flight, because then your body is in a state of fight or flight. And here again, professionals, we are all in our little pillars, in our little boxes. The psychotherapist, the psychologist is teaching cognitive behavioral therapy, which is excellent. But why not look at the person's breathing and why not look at that person's sleep? How can you help? I was going to use the word fixed there, but how could you help somebody with anxiety, depression, PTSD, unless we change breathing patterns and we improve their sleep. So I think what we're talking about, the benefits of slowing down your breath, but we're also talking about the benefits of holding your breath. Yes. And intermittent hypoxia. And in your book, yes. you write a lot about um, athletes who were trained to you know, hold their breath for the last 15, 15 seconds of a sprint yes. or things like that and saw a significant reward in, the, yes. in terms of performance as a result of that. So um, I, I'd like to just get, help people get clear. And also, by the way, at, at oxygenadvantage.com, you know, Patrick has um, some classes and some courses you can take to learn all of these techniques and read his book, which he, he gives all that information there as well. But I just wonder the difference in how do you balance like, okay, should I slow my breath down and breathe really slow or should I be holding my breath? Where do yes, both yes. of those fit in? Yeah, good question. Don't do breath holds before you go to sleep. <laughs> you, you will, you, it's, one is an up regulator and the other is a down regulator. So if you do really slow breathing, it's very good for focusing the mind and you know, for training the brain to be concentrated. Um, and that's another topic for discussion, but I'll, I'll just stick with what we were talking about. So we have slow breathing to address functional breathing patterns. 
to to optimize our breathing during rest because that will translate into improved breathing efficiency during physical exercise during sleep so the main areas in terms of slow light deep breathing or sometimes i say light slow breathing light slow deep lsd sometimes people remember it a little bit easier by um it's that's addressing and optimizing functional breathing and on the other hand we do breath holding on the exhalation and this is a stressor now probably if i have somebody coming in with panic disorder and anxiety and depression i wouldn't do it with them but if I was, I go very, very gentle. And here is the reason. People with panic disorder, there seems to be two subsets. You've got one group of people with panic disorder and they can cope with air hunger fairly okay. They feel a little bit uncomfortable. The same response is what any of us will feel. But you have another group with panic disorder. And if I put them into air hunger, it'll bring on such a fear response that they think they are going to die. And that group I have to be very, very careful with because I've made mistakes in the past and I've given them too much of an air hunger. And I know I was in London, I was working with a small group at 10 o'clock in the morning, this is going back a while, um, 10 o'clock, and I was getting him to open up his nose because we, we open up the nose by simply holding the breath. And, you know, I had to open up his nose. But I must have pushed him just a little bit too hard. And at five o'clock that evening, he sent me a text. He had admitted himself to accident and emergency because of the fear response generated by doing the breath holding. Okay, so, but I'm not saying that to worry anybody. In general, you know, it's a very, very easy thing to do, but if you were prone to panic disorder or anxiety or depression, I would say you'd have to go very, very easy and you have to kind of have a step approach to it. If somebody comes in with panic disorder, I want to give them a teaspoon of the suffocation because I want to decondition them towards that alarm you know, there's an alarm that's going off that when they are in a state of panic attack, the suffocation feeling is there. But if I give them, you know, when they're feeling relatively calm, small teaspoons, we can help to decondition that. And we can also improve their functional breathing patterns. Now, why do we do breath holding on the exhalation? Well, when you exhale to functional residual capacity, you have less air in the lungs. And as a result of less air in the lungs, it's easier to lower your blood oxygen saturation. And the blood oxygen saturation can be monitored by a little pulse oximeter, which is detecting the fraction of your red blood cells occupied by oxygen. So we have the individual breathe in through their nose, breathe out through their nose, hold their nose, and say walk. They walk, and then they go into a fast walk, into a jog, into a run, into a sprint. And they keep holding their breath until a fairly strong air hunger, and then let go. And then I have them minimize their breathing for six breaths. And then I have them normal breathing for 12 to 18 breaths. I want to prolong the hypoxic, hypercapnic stimulus. So during the breath hold, we're lowering their blood oxygen saturation to about typically 85% SpO2, which is severe hypoxia. And we are increasing their carbon dioxide from 40 millimeters of mercury pressure up to 50 plus. This is greatly disturbing the blood acid base balance. And we're doing it to increase the buffering capacity inside in the muscle compartment. So if you think if you're doing a breath hold, when you put the body into an anaerobic state, the hydrogen ion coming from the muscle doesn't get oxidized. And instead that hydrogen ion will associate with pyruvic acid to form lactic acid. And then lactic acid is dissociating into hydrogen ion and lactate. 
And at the same time that you're holding the breath, your carbon dioxide level is increasing. And carbon dioxide in the blood is forming carbonic acid and then dissociating into hydrogen ion and bicarbonate. So we have an increased hydrogen ion coming from the carbon dioxide and we have an increased hydrogen ion coming from the lack of oxygen. This is disturbing. This is creating such an acidity to disturb the blood acid base balance, which is forcing the buffering capacity inside in the muscles to improve. It's not known exactly how, because it's very difficult to get into the compartments. But with near-infrared spectroscopy researchers, we're able to identify that the blood oxygen saturation inside in the muscle is dropping. Now, what does this mean for an athlete? Well, this means that an athlete has improved buffering capacity. It translates into delayed lactic acid and fatigue. And it's coming back to, you know, this points again in what was written in your book. Athletes are pushing themselves so hard. And, you know, they're doing, in, you know, high-intensity high in, high interval training, pushing themselves at, a, at an all-out effort to stimulate anaerobic glycolysis. Now, if you go out an all-out effort, your blood oxygen saturation will hardly change. It'll go from about 97 down to about 93, maybe even 92. Your carbon dioxide won't change at all. It even, may even drop a little bit. So people are pushing themselves so hard to stimulate anaerobic glycolysis. It's traumatic to the athlete. It's increasing the risk of injury. And it's hardly creating a hypoxic effect at all because the individual is stay, staying in normal oxygen saturation. What we do is breath holding and we could do it walking, we could do it jogging, and we can really drop the blood oxygen saturation without the trauma. So that would be one aspect of what we do. And the other thing is, you know, during a breath hold, and I would say if I'm doing presentations, like originally I used to get quite a little bit nervous, you know, I'd be going out to a room of people and could have 500 people there. I don't like using PowerPoint presentations. I tend to talk off the cuff. So I need to be very focused. I need to be in the zone. I can't be influenced by distracting thoughts. I need to have my energy. I want to be relaxed, but I don't want to be too relaxed. So I started my own little kind of protocol that I would do. Number one is I would turn up very late towards the event, that I wasn't hanging around a conference, talking to people. I wasn't watching other speakers because all of that is contributing to decision fatigue. So I would always turn up about a half an hour before I was due to talk. But in that half an hour, I don't want to talk to anybody. I will hide somewhere and I will close my eyes and I will slow down my breathing to the point of air hunger for about 15 to 20 minutes. And it brings me into present moment awareness. If there's any sort of distracting thoughts, I can help put them aside. So it's taking me into the zone, but I'm too relaxed then. So then I do five strong breath holds. And the interesting thing about a breath hold, it increases blood flow to the brain. Now for an athlete, it causes more. The spleen contracts to release red blood cells into circulation, etc. But so now I'm going out, I've done 20 minutes of slow breathing to focus the mind. And I've done strong breath holds to increase blood flow to the brain. And for me, it's, it's, it's a perfect state to give presentations. Well, it's so, that's so funny. When I, uh, I was studying in India many years ago, and I uh, met Deepak Chopra in India. He came back, and I came back. My wife got pregnant, and 
came back to America and started traveling with him and doing lectures with him and going on TV with him. He was just starting his whole thing out. Wow. So I was really nervous about that. So I went and bought a book called Never Be Nervous Again. And they talked about uh, actors like Yul Brenner, who used to uh, do this breathing technique to kind of help, you know, de-stress him before talk. And it was just simply the Ujjayi Ayurvedic breath where you do that kind of ocean breath and you do it real slow and when you breathe that way and you feel your abdominal muscles will contract onto your diaphragm activate a parasympathetic response and our studies showed that we published create a coherent brainwave alpha state and all of a sudden all the butters butterflies will disappear and there was a breathing technique i used for years to do exactly the same thing because you know i was i don't like powerpoints either i like speaking off the cuff because i feel yes. like it's more can you can connect yeah, um, totally. And and uh, so I did exactly the same thing that, that yeah. you some a little bit different, but uh, yeah, same thing. I want to ask you about a, about a technique, a couple of techniques. One technique that I um, taught um, my uh, my students. I used to teach a class here in Boulder at North Boulder Park for years. It was a free nose breathing class when my book came out. And soon the fire department from Denver heard heard about it because one of their they have like uh, training drills where. The guys would put their tank on, the mask on, and how long the mask would, the tank would last yes. could, could save a life or two or three if it could last yes. longer. So this one of their guys came to my class and he started competing in these competitions and winning all the competitions. His tank was lasting 38, 40 minutes and 26 minutes yes. was like a record. It was mind-boggling mind to these guys. So, so one day, three fire trucks pulled up to my class and from Denver and they all came out with their masks and their gas mask on and I go, and they go, we're here for the, the Darth Vader. We're here for the class, you know. And, and one of the techniques that I would teach, and I want to know your opinion about this, I would have them breathe deeply in through their nose and out through their nose very slowly and notice a natural pause between each breath that was naturally occurring. Breathe in, breathe out. But as they, and it would walk and it would focus on just that natural rhythm of their own rhythm of, and with a natural space, totally relaxed. Then we would increase the pace. And as you increase the pace, one of the first things that happens is, that rhythm starts to pick up a little bit and you lose the space between each breath. Yes. And, and I said, that is what you have to look for. And I would, after that, I would, they, some health club asked me to do the class indoors, which I did for many years. And I would put people on treadmills and, and have elite athletes come. And I never had an elite athlete be aware or tuned into when they would lose the space between the breath. They would wait all the way until I had to open up their mouth when it was a yeah. full-blown emergency, you know? And so I would train people to pick up the emergency before, you know, the blood lactate became such an emergency that they had, a, and it was blood lactate threshold that they were exercising and trained to feel, but they didn't feel this place where the emergency just began to happen. Where I wondered if the physiology is accurate when I tell them that you convert blood lactate on the muscle site naturally, but if you ask for too much work, and there's too much blood lactate, that blood lactate is going to come back to the heart and back to the respiratory system and increase your heart rate and your breath rate. And the yes. first thing you'll see happen is the space will be between the breath. And that's the measurement of, I am now moving into a fight or flight emergency. So I can then back off, slow down, reestablish that calm breath again. Once I do that, I go back after it again. And what we see on a treadmill is they go from, you know, from two degrees of elevation to then four degrees to eight degrees. We watch and measure then they see it right in front of them. You know, they went from like four degrees of elevation the first time where their breath got short and now they're doing 10 or 12 degrees of elevation. Yeah. 
and they're still doing it. And I wondered if that is actually an accurate interpretation of the physiology that, the, that that's the first sign of the blood lactate returning back to the cardiovascular system as an emergency. I can't convert this much that fast on the muscle site, so you guys take care of it. Sure. And um, were they sustaining nasal breathing throughout physical exercise? The whole time was nose breathing. Okay. It was just that, that a lot of them would, would wait too long until they felt they had to open up their yeah. mouth. And I was going, and they'd only open up the mouth at the very end. You waited way too long. We want you to pick up that stage, that stress when it, when the breath, nose breathing just becomes, you lose the space in the nose breathing way before you have to open your mouth. Sure. And during physical exercise, it was a graded intensity, was it? Yeah. So what we would yes. do on a treadmill, we'd have them going two miles an hour on the treadmill. Every yeah. 15 seconds, we'd increase the elevation by one degree. The elevation. Okay, I get it. Two degrees, yeah. three degrees. The first time they go at four degrees, they lose the space between the breath. Yeah. They go back to zero yeah. degrees, reestablish the space, the rhythm. Then they go yes. one degree, two degrees, three degrees. And now they go to eight degrees. And they're like, yeah. whoa. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I think, you know, what's happening there, I would probably assume it's carbon dioxide buildup in the blood. Right. Now, it's, it just brings into a question, a paper that was published by George Jallam, D-A-L-L-A-M. And he's an academic from the United States. I'm not sure where. But he's also a well-known triathlete, and he switched to nose breathing during his races um, about four years ago, maybe five years ago. But no studies. We have no studies on it. And a few studies in terms of what happens when you switch from mouth to nose breathing during physical exercise. What normally researchers do are they'll get a bunch of, say, 10, 15 athletes, and they'll say, okay, guys, today... I'm going to have you switch to nose breathing during physical exercise, and I'm going to test you. But if you think of it, it's fruitless because number one is these guys have probably never breathed through their nose in their life. You're testing them something so new to them, and they are going to be suffocated because when you switch from mouth to nose breathing, there is a resistance. Your nose imposes a resistance to breathing that's two to three times that of the mouth during the day. Now, by the way, the mouth imposes the resistance to your breathing. That's 2.5 times that of your nose during sleep. So mm. they're a little bit different. So if you can imagine an athlete, the first time they switch from mouth to nose breathing, the carbon dioxide that's coming from the tissue isn't able to leave the blood quickly enough because of the resistance to breathing because breathing volume has slowed and reduced. Now, this is where Dallam's paper was interesting. He spent two years trying to recruit subjects. And after two years, he recruited 10. That's why it's got a small population. The task was they had to switch exclusively to nasal breathing during their physical exercise for a period of six months. Then he wanted to test them after they had switched to nasal breathing for six months. What was the difference? During a 100% intensity, a graded exercise test, their respiratory rate with nose breathing was 39 breaths per minute, and with mouth breathing, it was 49. The carbon dioxide in the blood with nose breathing was 44 millimeters of mercury pressure, and with mouth breathing, it was 40. Now, straight away, that's a huge difference, four millimeters of mercury pressure. But the key here is the athletes had adapted to the higher carbon dioxide, because if you sustain nose breathing over a period of time, air hunger diminishes. So your guys who were on the treadmill and it was elevating, 
yes, carbon dioxide was building, increasing up, it was increasing in their blood, which was increasing their ventilation. And that's why the gap disappeared between the, between the breaths because they were feeling more breathless. And at some point they weren't able to tolerate it. It's amazing. If you go and stand at any mart, and I've done it, you know, in Denmark a few months back, I stood at the side of the road and I said, I just want to see if I stand here for 15 or 20 minutes, will anybody go past with their mouth closed? Not one, not one single person. And then I wrote an article about the stupidity of mouth breathing during physical exercise. Here is why. You have your mouth open, you were ventilating the upper regions of the lungs, but the greatest concentration of blood is in the lower. So straight away during physical exercise, the oxygen uptake in the blood is less. But mouth breathing, you don't have as good a tolerance of carbon dioxide. And as a result, you are breathing harder, your ventilation is heavier, but it costs energy to breathe. As we sit here, you know, with optimal breathing, we will be wasting about two to 3% of our oxygen consumption. If you do moderate physical exercise, it's about 6%. If you do pretty intense physical exercise, it's 10%. If you do maximum physical exercise, between 13 to 15% of your oxygen consumption is going to support the breathing muscles. But if you have inefficient breathing, it even goes beyond that. Another aspect is the diaphragm is prone to fatigue. 50% of athletes can experience diaphragmatic fatigue, either during high intensity, interval, high intensity exercise or endurance. And if the diaphragm gets tired, blood is stolen from the legs to feed the diaphragm. Okay, now coming back to Dalham's paper, the individuals who had switched to nose breathing for six months, they had 22% less ventilation. Can you imagine that within six months, you could achieve the same intensity and duration of physical exercise, but with 22% less breathing? That's surely a great savings in, in terms of economy. And given that we're wasting less energy, the respiratory muscles are less likely to fatigue, there's higher carbon dioxide in the blood, this will cause a right shift of the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve, but basically more oxygen gets delivered to the tissues. So the individual is working more aerobic. And also with Dallam's paper, the fraction of expired oxygen was less, meaning that they were breathing out less oxygen, meaning that the body had utilized that oxygen. Now, I think we will have more and more studies on this. And even though 30 years ago you were talking about, 20 years ago I've been talking about it, the science has yet to catch up. If athletes switch, they will feel a difference very quickly. And it comes back to, and sorry, I to cut across you, recovery is so much better. People have sent me in emails. They've said that they've run Martins and they felt after the Martin that they could do it again. Now, I will talk about this. My nose is terrible. So I would have to use something like a nasal dilator. So when people first switch to nose breathing, if they have anatomically a compromised nose, they might have to use a product. You'll get them online. Get, just get a nasal dilator. You could write, use breathe right strips, but the sweat, they don't really stick. One is called a turbine. Now, I have no interest. It's not my company or anything. So the turbine, it's just a little plastic device that goes up into the nose to help open up the nose. 
and that way it'll make nasal breathing easier to sustain. <clears throat> yeah, you said tell people, you know, once we start nose breathing, be prepared to suffocate for the first three weeks because it's a... <laughs> yes, but this is where, this is it, you know, yeah. but then that air hunger goes and then Absolutely. it's yeah. so much better. This is quality, not quantity. I, I taught a class for weeks, every week for years and years and years. And I'd watch people come and they thought I was crazy. They'd come back a year later, two years later and they go, you know, I came to your class and I thought you were nuts. But I kept doing it just to see. And now yeah. all of a sudden I could never breathe out of this side or my asthma, what was there. And all of a sudden yeah. all those problems yes. are gone. You know, yeah. we, in, in the study that we did in the early 90s, it was published in the International Journal of Neuroscience. And we actually did exactly what you said. We had half the group. Um, we had the group, all the, all the groups, I think had 15 high school kids in the study. Every one of them practiced nose breathing for six, I think it was six weeks before we had to actually had them do the test because it didn't make any sense to yes. test them because they'd be suffocating. And when they came back, we actually measured their endurance was significantly less um, uh, or more with nose breathing versus mouth breathing. We measured their, um, their perceived exertion. Perceived yes. exertion with mouth breathing was a 10 out of 10. Perceived exertion with nose breathing was a four out of 10. Same yeah. levels of work was 200 watts of resistance on a bike. We measured their breath rate. Their breath rate mouth breathing was 48 breaths per minute to the, to the nose breathers. Same kids next yeah. day doing that 14 breaths per minute versus 48. Wow. Not to wow. mention what we talked about, the parasympathetic activation, heart rate variability dramatically greater, which means more parasympathetic activation, as well as the whole brain went into a coherent, meditative, calm alpha state. So not only do the brain waves change and become slower, which is more resting and restorative, but the whole brain became coherent as well. So that was, that was a study we published a long, you know, that was 1992 and, uh, that we published, wow. which was exactly how, you're, how the guy you were talking about did it as well. Um, I would love to read the study. Um, yeah, I'd love to get my hands on it. Yeah, just go and just type in, um, type in nose breathing exercise, and that sure. study will pop up. In the, and I actually have the whole study there, and then you can link to the actual published study on it on PubMed. Right. It's, there, Excellent. it's there as well. You just type in my name, PubMed, and we used to call it Invincible Athletics, is, was okay. the, is the course that I taught way back when. Um, okay, I, I, I don't want to keep you too much longer, but I have one more question for you. Um, one of the breathing techniques that's become super popular lately is the Wim Hof breathing technique, yes. um, which is a, a, a very powerful mouth breath in followed by a mouth breath out. And you do that for 30, 40 breaths pretty vigorously. And then you do an exhalation breath hold. And he does, follows that with a, a holding of the breath for about 15 seconds. And then he goes on from there. Um, <clears throat> of course, the cold showers and all that. But I'm more interested in your take on the difference between him doing that very aggressive mouth breathing, um, vigorous mouth breathing technique versus what we're talking about. Um, and uh, in Ayurvedic medicine, they don't they they have a technique called bastrika, which is nose breathing, bellows breathing, with breath retention, which increases parasympathetic activation, or mouth breathing would increase sympathetic activation. And his studies show from my perspective that he's actually creating a more strong response to a more stressful situation. Yes. And that causes a, a, you know, it's like giving prednisone to somebody when they're sick, it boosts their, 
their fight or fight or flight response, where the Ayurvedic technique, and I think more in line with what you're talking about, is creating a more parasympathetic calm, a bigger eye of the storm that you can mm-hmm. have the bigger the eye, more powerful your winds, the more stress you can handle without dodging refrigerators in the winds of the storm. You're in the calm and you live in hell from that place. So that's my take on the Wim Hof thing. Um, but I wonder what your take was, because it's so popular now. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. I've read Matthias Cox's paper and I looked at the stats that had happened when they investigated individuals who had done it. Um, blood oxygen saturation, a couple of things. The blood oxygen saturation didn't increase, which would be expected. It was normal. So it was 100% at the start and it remained 100%. The PO2 in the blood did increase from 123 initially, which was high to begin with, to a very high of 176 millimeters of mercury pressure. However, there's only about 2 to 3% of your oxygen uptake, which is dissolved directly in the blood. So the main, the main way that oxygen is carried in the blood didn't increase at all because it was already fully saturated. And there would have been an increase of oxygen dissolved directly in the blood um, because of the volume of air that was being brought into the body. Now, in carbon dioxide, it was very much a depletion. So the 30 breaths initially got rid of a lot of carbon dioxide. And even after the breath hold, carbon dioxide never recovered. And the reason that the individuals could hold their breath for so long, well, if you hyperventilate, you get rid of the alarm to breathe. You're lowering your carbon dioxide so low that it takes quite a while during a breath hold for your carbon dioxide to climb up sufficiently to to stimulate your breathing, you know, to get up back up to that threshold. But because the individuals then can hold their breath for quite a long time, it gives them enough time for their blood oxygen saturation to go very, very low. So the Wim Hof technique is hypocapnic. It's low CO2 throughout. It's causing respiratory alkalosis. Um, It's increasing blood pH, of course. And it's not increasing necessarily. It's not increasing the SpO2 but it is increasing the PO2. Now, does it cause more oxygen to be delivered or less to the tissues? Well, I would say the loss of carbon dioxide is going to cause the the affinity between hemoglobin and oxygen to be strengthened. So there's going to be less oxygen getting to the tissues. Blood vessels are also going to constrict, yeah? But but when you do the breath hold... That's yes. where the CO2 starts to rise, and that would dump all the oxygen into your tissue so you get better oxygen saturation. So you would get at least a period of, of higher CO2 tolerance, but you're saying it's not enough to create that, that tolerance like in your daily life. It's true. Like when the breath hole, during the breath hole, CO2 is going to climb up again. But the carbon dioxide never recovers to what it was originally. So the individual is still hypocapnic throughout. So that's why it's hypoxic, hypocapnic. Like it's a very wonderful technique as a stressor of the human body. And I think it could be very good in terms of causing adaptations that are, you know, conducive to improving the immune functioning, the immune system. And Cox's paper, they look at this, you know, they talk about medications which are designed to antagonize the immune system. And these medications are used with irritable bowel syndrome, with rheumatoid arthritis, but these medications are very, very um, costly and they've got serious side effects. And the authors of this paper are asking the question, well, 
here is a breathing technique that is able to influence the immune system that could be beneficial, but of course, more research is needed. So like the Wim Hof is a wonderful technique. Um, you know, what's the difference to what we do with the oxygen advantage? Well, I want to address functional breathing as well. I want to address, like if somebody comes into me, I'm concerned about how are they breathing when they're with me, but how are they breathing when they walk down the street, when they go for a run, when they sleep? What's their everyday breathing? So we get the functional breathing as best we can. And we also do then intermittent hypoxic, hypercaptic. So we do low oxygen, high CO2, and Wim Hof is low oxygen, low CO2. So differences, but similarities as well. Yeah, yeah, wonderful. Thank you, thank you so much for that. Um, I'd love to have you back. Um, sure, of course. Definitely, definitely when you uh, write your next book or, or sooner because that might be too long for me to wait to have another conversation with you. And, uh, and uh, maybe I'll, I'll come to Ireland and, and knock on your door one day. And, and uh, I'd love to just see what you're doing there. At some of course, point. yes. I'll, I'll, I'll make that a promise that I will do that. Uh, do. I'll give you advance notice. And, and uh, we have six kids. So you have room for six kids with my wife. That's eight of us. So <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, nobody invites us anywhere with six kids because it's like, you know. But anyway, um, the book is The Oxygen Advantage. It's a phenomenal book. As you can see, listening to Patrick talk, he absolutely has done his homework. He's done the research. Um, I started my career writing about and doing research on nose breathing versus mouth breathing. I still think it's the most important thing that you can do for your health and longevity. Um, and I, I just, in what you've just heard today, uh, I think you need to watch this podcast a couple of times to really hear the science and i think you need to read this book and watch the podcast go to his website oxygenadvantage.com get all the information you can but this will change your life and uh, it's so critically important that you get that i mean we talk about sleep apnea i talk about you know anxiety depression cognitive decline immunity compromise um you know the, the the biomechanics of just using your having your breath move your ribs and massage your whole rib cage, your heart, your lungs, yes. move your lymphatic system. Yeah. The your diaphragm underneath your diaphragm is your stomach, and of course I write a lot about digestive imbalances. Many times when you're breathing through your mouth, you're not activating the parasympathetic rest and digest nervous system. Seventy four percent of the population who can't digest their food have digestive complaints. A big chunk of that is because you're breathing into the emergency, run up a tree, save your life, not digest nervous system. So these are the things that are so pervasive when you just do this one thing right, which is the, you know, the fundamental thing that we do without even thinking about it is how and when we breathe. So um, Patrick, um, tell us how people can, I just said that, but please reinforce anything I didn't mention, classes, courses, ways people can get a hold of you, What's the best way? What's the best first step for folks? I think the first best step is even just to pay attention to your breathing. Um, the natural pause that you said following exhalation is really something important. Everybody should have a natural pause post-exhalation. But you only have a natural pause when your bolt score is about 20 seconds. People who have a bolt score of 10 seconds, people who are finding it hard to breathe, people who are feeling air hunger, people who are getting stressed and anxious, they'll often breathe out. And no sooner when they breathe out, they feel the need to breathe back in again. So pay attention. 
I was a mouth breather with a stuffy nose for 20 years. I was not reaching. I was absolutely, my quality of life was dreadful. And okay, you learn to live with it. And it's only when, you know, when something happens that you can make a comparison and you realize, yes, for 20 years, I did it the wrong way. Something as simple as nose breathing. But the nose is so powerful when we use it. And that's why I would like to thank you because you are absolutely a pioneer in this field. And now people are starting to realize the benefits of it. For sports performance, we have quite a bit of information on oxygenadvantage.com. And then for health, for asthma, for sleep problems, for anxiety, it's butecoclinic.com. And just if I could mention it, I've recorded all of the children's videos and we're putting them out there for free. So we want children and um, we're not asking people even where we will have the videos up in about two weeks. We won't be asking for email addresses, nothing. Every exercise that we do with kids, we're putting it out free on the internet and that's it. And we're hoping to leave it out there indefinitely because no child, and I'm backing it up with the science as well, no child should be allowed to breathe through the mouth. And John, the incidence is 25 to 50% of studied children persistently mouth breathe. Nobody's saying anything to these kids. And it's terrible. It's terrible. So we've really, you know, I think it's time that there's a greater awareness there, um, both for children and for adults. And great conversation. Loved it. Super. Thank you. And the website for that is the uh, oxygenadvantage.com or the buteco.com? No, it's butecoclinic.com. And can it's you, B, can you spell B -U that out? Yeah. B-U-T-E-Y-K-O clinic.com. Butecoclinic.com. Wow. Okay. Well, thank you so much. And I, I look forward to having more conversations and working with you and, and you know, spreading this word. I want to, you know, I love the fact that you've just taken this as your full-time career and, um, and I write about it, you know, as I see the research, but I, and I want to want to support you in any way I can. And I will, wow. and I'll let people know and get people to send people your way as many as I can. Please go to his, his website, oxygenadvantage.com, pick up this book. It's brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Sean.